0: The Exton Moss Experiment Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss Episode 54 Secret Army Hello boys and girls and a very warm welcome to the Exton
1: Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. Today we're going to be looking at something you've been after doing for ages. I have. It's a wonderful, wonderful BBC show from the late 1970s called Secret Army. A Second World War story, a group of Belgians who operate a rescue operation for downed British airmen. It's not part of the actual resistance, but they help airmen get away down to to Spain or across the Channel so that they can get back to fighting in the war. It's very well-remembered, very well-renowned. It was the basis for the long-running sitcom Allo Allo, oh. which actually ran for an awful lot longer than Secret Army itself. Secret Army ran for three years. And quite nicely, the the final season is... The last part of the war. So it's as Belgium is being liberated.
0: Right. Also, oh, it's rounded off. It didn't just end. It was- no, it doesn't.
1: Ju- well, it does just end, but it ends at the end of the war. Right, yeah. And then there was a sequel set a number of years later with the main villain in this, uh, an SS officer called Kessler, who gets his own season, spin-off uh, set 30 years or so after Secret Army, so contemporary at the time. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, Involving a kind of organizations that Simon Wiesenthal had hmm, hmm. Um, in tracking down escaped Nazi war criminals. That's a very different series. It's a very good series. Yep. And that's something that we could come on to in a bit. But we're going to be looking at the original Secret Army. And because of that, we have a special tonic screwdriver. I will
0: get it out and uh, whip the top off the bottle.
1: What have we got for tonight? Well, tonight we're delving into a bit of gin history. Because what we've got is the Bowles distilleries, Geneva from Amsterdam. And this is uh, produced in Holland from their original recipe. The distillery was established in 1575. And the recipe dates back to 1820. Now, Geneva is the precursor to gin. It was Mm. the drink that was brought over to, to England and then was amended to become the gin that we know and love. Yes. So we have some information about this. Uh, it says, Bowles Geneva is expertly made according to the original 1820 Lucas Bowles recipe, reinvented for today's cocktails. The smooth, subtle, malty flavour of this white spirit comes from using over 50% malt wine, which is made from long fermented rye, corn and wheat, triple distilled in copper pot stills. This malt wine, the heart of a good Geneva, is then infused with carefully selected distillate of botanicals. This process has been mastered and perfected by the Lucas Bowles Company, master distillers in Amsterdam since 1575. Bowles Geneva is the authentic ingredient of many classic cocktails, and it can also be enjoyed chilled or on the rocks. And Bowles do lots and lots and lots of different um, mm. liqueurs. They do, to my mind, the best Parfaitamore, which is a, a sweetened violet Turkish Delighty liqueur. Absolutely lovely. Would you but, have used that in a cocktail that we had last night by any chance? No, I didn't. Parfait amour is far too nice to blend into cocktails, that uh, the Violet Martini that I made last night was with creme de violette, JJ Whitley's Violet Gin and Violet Syrup with some vodka to give it a a kick. But back to this. Back back to the Geneva. This is parent of gin.
0: Oh my God, I prefer the children. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it smells like yeast. It does. It smells like um, dough, bread dough. Um, it's got a yeasty aftertaste. Now that's new. It smells
1: like yeast. It tastes like yeast. And by golly, it is yeast. It has an aftertaste of yeast. I can't really oh, taste no. anything else in that. No. that that's, n- that's really not for me. I mean, yeah, historical accuracy and all that, but it's really not nice. Um, I think a one.
0: I'm so tempted to give it zero.
1: Well... Go for it.
0: Yeah, it's actively nasty. Actually, I think that might be unfair. I think I'll give it a one because it's not... It doesn't taste that way because they've not put any effort in. It tastes that way, but it's just not very nice. But yeah, do not drink this, boys and girls. I uh, I can't imagine anyone really, really enjoying that.
1: No, that's not very nice. Oh, God. Would you like something nice to have with it? I think so, yeah. So, shall we do a second tonic screwdriver? Mm. drive?
0: Uh, now, a second squeeze of the tonic screwdriver has um, uh, made me revise down my score. While we've just been in the kitchen mixing, the Geneva has given me an instant headache and bad palpitations. Now, it, neither of these things are anything that I'm usually afflicted by. I'm revising that score down to a zero. That's Tober Mori level bad, that, if not a bit worse.
1: Okay, so having tried and failed with the, with the Dutch, we are now going to swing to the other side of Belgium for a French gin. And this is um, made in Chamonix in the uh, French Alps at 4,810 metres. It is altitude Alpine dry gin and the info bollocks says the ascent to the summit of Mont Blanc inspired this the pinnacle of gins created with mountain botanicals and high spirited joie de vivre 43% so it's got a decent kick to it that's all it says and it's actually in a very nice bottle as well a, a little mountainscape and a couple of silhouettes of mountain climbers standing on a hill so what do we think infinitely better
0: uh, but it couldn't be any worse
1: that's that's really smooth. Again, the vaguest
0: hint of a bitter aftertaste. Actually, the longer you leave it, the bitter the aftertaste get. Yeah, that's weird. That is new.
1: I can't say there's anything to distinguish that from... Your bog standard gin. Yeah. It's it, all right. It's nice and smooth. There's nothing that particularly leaps out and grabs you by the throat, either unpleasantly or pleasantly in terms of specific bot- uh, botanicals. But what there is is well blended, mm. um, doesn't leave any nasty bitter aftertaste. It does have bitterness in the gin itself, but that's no bad thing. It's just, just a,
0: a little bit too far on the bitter side for me. Yeah. Um, Whereas I,
1: I think this is smooth, easy to drink, I don't think it's anything special. Mm. This is a four from me. I'm gonna give it a two. There's nothing especially
0: wrong with it. And as Simon's just said, it is very smooth and, and well made really but uh, it's just not to my palate so if you like your gins sharp this will be one for you but uh, for those of us that like them maybe a little bit sweeter and flavored it's yeah probably not one that you'll go back to uh,
1: I wouldn't say no thank you to it to another one of these but if there's an offer of something with a bit more personality to it I would probably go for that but what it does it does nicely
0: and with that it's time yeah. to descend into the bowels of Podcasting House to open up the Black Archive.
1: Okay, well, get Spaff to open the door then. He probably won't come down because he's it... recovering from the effects of the Geneva. But... Oh, poor Spaff. I've never seen him so quiet. <coughs>
0: Here we are in the Black Archive, the repository of all the lost television material, film and radio that has ever been. I am going to pull out this week a series called Do Not Adjust Your Set, which mm. was a it was a forerunner of Monty Python. There were Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam. Yes. yes. Were in that.
1: And Eric Idle. And oh, David, of
0: course he was, yes. And David
1: Jason and Denise Coffey. Well,
0: David Jason I certainly know was in it because it's mentioned in his autobiography that he was clearly quite put out that he didn't get... In vices into the Monty Python stable along and you sort of feel for him it's not like he's, he's not done well for himself in fact uh, he's, he's probably done better than several of the, the actual Pythons but um, this, it, he did a character in it called
1: Captain... Captain Nice Captain Splendid
0: I can't remember. Come on, Wikipedia. We've, have, we've been having this this morning.
1: I mean, that actually ties in nicely with my choice of the Black Archive, which is, at last, the 1948 show. Oh, right. Which is the other Python precursor. It is. And that's where John Cleese was, along with Graham Chapman, Tim Brooke Taylor. There were a couple of other goodies oh, in that, weren't there? My mind's stuck on Monty Berman. No, Marty Feldman. Marty Feldman. Um, and Amy MacDonald was the the other regular mm. in that, um, as a sort of regular. Announcer, but also had the occasional sketch of her own. Because
0: I, I didn't realise until this morning actually that there were any of those missing. I thought they'd all turned up. At last, the nineteen forty eight show.
1: No, there's, um, there's been quite a lot to, turned up, um, and there's more that has audio but doesn't have video. But yeah, there is still mm. still missing stuff, and there's still missing stuff. And do not just yet. No, at last, the nineteen forty eight show is probably a more direct precursor to Monty Python in that it was a, a comedy sketch show aimed at an adult audience. Mm-hmm. And some of the, at last, the 1948 show sketches were reused in Monty Python. Um, it's, oh, were they? Yeah. It's where the Four Yorkshiremen sketch was first shown. Yes, it was. It was, because I've seen it in black and white as well. Yeah. And in the, at last, the 1948 Show, then you've got uh, yeah, two of the pythons, but you've also got Tim Brooke Taylor and you've got um, Marty Feldman as mm. well. I believe Marty Feldman was asked to join the python team but wanted to carry on with his writing career. Bill Oddie, I think, was in Do Not Adjust Your Set. I'm not as familiar with Do Not Adjust Your Set as I am with the ni- last of the 1948 show. It's fun, but it's very kids' TV fun, right? Um, yeah their regular band was the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band that's right yes that's right. Um, and they are just 1960s era bonkers mm. the, there's one particular one that I, that survives that, of them doing the monster mash um, <laughs> and the, the saxophonist is wearing a dress and on roller skates and they the, the, the singer is dressed up as Frankenstein and it, it's just all a bit weird but very entertainingly weird. And from that, that stable, you you spun off both Monty Python and... The goodies. The goodies. And occasionally, I don't know whether it happened in Monty Python, it certainly happened in the goodies, where you had a cameo from one of the Python team. Oh, did they? Yeah. I, I remember um, there's a, a genie's lamp, and the genie that, come, that comes out of it and is seen in the steam is John Cleese. Mm-hmm. And at the end of his little spiel, he turns around and looks at them and just says, "Kids show." It was all BBC stuff. Apparently, they were they were all still good friends. I believe that um, the Python team sort of contributed creatively to the the goodies, whether or not they were they were credited. Um, the same the other way around, because they would all meet up as mates and chat about what's funny and what wasn't, and they were they were both anarchic in different ways.
0: Well, I've just been listening to the CD version of Michael Palin's first volume of Diaries, Mm. uh, and it's very clear that it's all very uh, avuncular between them.
1: It just seemed to be a bunch of mates who fancied doing TV programmes, and it happened to be a very bright and creative bunch of mates who ended up making some sublime television. We'll do, at last, the 1948 show at some point. We'll do Do Not Adjust Your Setter. At some point, because there's enough of each for mm. for us to do a full episode.
0: We'll, we'll do some Python. because um, I'm.
1: I was going to say not only, but also. Oh, yeah that was
0: from the same stable as well. I, was, I knew it uh, was one. I wasn't. No, thinking.
1: that was that was uh, Peter Cook and, and Dudley Moore. So that was Derek and Clive. Um, the establishment, which was more. Uh, Anthony Newley, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Anna, the establishment was a um, was a nightclub in Soho in the sixties. Annika Wills was one of the regulars there, right. and she talks about it a lot in her autobiography. Spike Milligan was involved in that. It's a different stable. The Python team were. Foot, well, Oxford. It's Footlight. not what I'm
0: thinking of. It's um, I would call it David Frost's, because um, there were a few other pythons were involved in that, weren't they? It um, was, the, was it that
1: one. You it? mean? I'm sorry. I'll read that again. That was oh, was the Frost report. Frost report was on television. Um, I'm sorry. I'll read that again. Was on radio, and was David Frost with John Cleese. Who else? Was it? Uh, Tim Taylor was in that. Bill Oddie was in that. Joe Kendall
0: I'm not familiar enough To disagree or agree Anyway it will I, I haven't
1: listened to them In, in age I really must be, uh, Because they are Wonderful There's a regular character Called Lady Constance To Coverlet That is played by Brook Taylor, Who is just Hilarious On that note We shall uh, We'd we'll better get... go back And check on how Spath is I'll doing the after, the after
0: that generic, oh, I fella. Well, and he, he He looked a very Peculiar shade of green Spaff, how are you doing? You liked it as much as we did then. Right, okay. Yeah, um,
1: I'm not qualified to practice on silent rooms. You know,
0: your third eye's not looking well, mate. No. So, um, Secret Army. Um, this is series one, episode one, I take it. We're yes, going
1: to watch, going to watch the, fir- the first couple of episodes. It's one that you really have to watch in order. Smash him.
0: Oh, without further ado, Ron VT. <laughs> Right, that was the first episode of Secret Army from 1977. It was bloody brilliant.
1: It was. It's fantastic. Um, Secret Army is the story of a Belgian organisation during the latter part of the Second World War where Belgium is occupied by the Nazis. And it's the story of Lifeline, who arranged to get British airmen who are downed in Belgium back to Britain. In the first episode we're introduced to the major characters within Lifeline. There is oh my, I want to say Renee, but it isn't. Albert. Albert who runs a cafe um called the Cafe Candide, his waitress Monique, another local woman called Natalie, the leader of Lifeline a woman called Lisa, Albert's bedridden wife, Andre. Lisa's uncle, who is the local bank manager and is their forger for uh, for documents. Alain, who is another member of Lifeline, and the local doctor, played by Valentine Dial, the Black Guardian himself. Mm-hmm. On the German side, there is Major Brandt, who is the Luftwaffe officer who is responsible for the interrogation of any of the downed pilots, and transferred into Brussels, and as as part of the plot of this episode, an SS officer called Kessler, who has a reputation for being a hardliner, and plans to sh- to shake up security. Another new arrival in Belgium is a British officer, by the name of John Curtis, who had been an RAF pilot shot down in Belgium had gone through lifeline and has come back to act as a liaison with the British military to provide support and finance during the episode one of the farms that's used as a safe house is raided by the uh, by the the Germans the husband and wife are taken into custody and when Kessler comes along. Rather than following Mayor Brandt's plan of sending them back and observing them, he ships the entire family off to a concentration camp as a way of demonstrating that it's a more hardline approach, both to Mayor Brandt and to the local population. The business of lifeline carries on. There are three airmen who are sent down the line to Paris to meet a, a guide who will take them over the Pyrenees. And once they're over the, the Pyrenees, they would be in neutral Spain from where they could get home. The episode ends with the arrival of Curtis at the Café Candide. Lisa and Albert are very suspicious of him and make the point that they have no contact with other escape organisations. They have no contact with members of the resistance and they don't even know the real names of the guides that they use to isolate them as much as possible. And the inference is that they don't really want to be organised by Britain. Mm. Well, that's where the episode stopped.
0: As we've observed several times today, the BBC does period drama exceptionally well. Better than anybody else. I mean, uh, the- was certainly up to this um for a very long time it was better than anybody else
1: yeah this was fantastic um it was regarded as being a a real feather in the bbc's cap at the time um it's been very fondly regarded since watching it now and i i think i've watched this episode seven eight times over the years there's still things to see in it that um it's well written it's well acted it's well portrayed there's one bit of handheld filming where one character moves from a, um, the cafe into the back room that's a bit shaky, I'm not wildly keen mm. on. But that's a very, very minor technical niggle. That's a really compelling 50 minutes of television. That was,
0: it flew by. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's, a, uh, there's an awful lot of story going on in that. There's a lot of different plot strands all going on at once. So, was a setup episode, there's a lot to digest there, but it's done in a such a skilled way, very well cast. I hasten to add, but it's not difficult to see elements of Alo Alo in this.
1: Well, this was the inspiration for Alo Alo.
0: Yeah, almost down to the uh, down to the character, you can see where they've got their inspiration for that from. We're going to do a couple of these because I, I I know Alan wants to he, you and him want to. Uh, watch a few at home as well don't you because we're going to take this this one's going to be
1: oh this is something he and I will watch uh, right the way through he'll probably be less interested in Kessler um, but the Secret Army stuff is right up his alley we did Manhunt no not Manhunt the Jane Asher one It's not Take Me Home but it's something like that it'll come back to me but we did we did that a couple of years ago and he absolutely loved it but we'll
0: we'll crack on with episode two uh, and we'll get back to you after now
1: Well, we've just watched the second episode, Sergeant on the Run, and the plot of which is Lifeline has really more airmen to help evacuate than they can comfortably manage, and they're having to rush them through quickly. So there are a group of three British airmen who need to be got back to England that they haven't had time to train up on how to look effectively Belgian and how to how to speak and they get recognised in the cafe. Two of them run and are shot down, but a third one is helped to escape by um, a local woman. He wanders around Brussels for a while and is eventually captured, is interrogated, and during his interrogation is able to escape. He's not able to get out of the German headquarters, but he's able to get get to a stairwell, which he jumps down intending to kill himself so he can't give information away during interrogation. He survives, but he's badly damaged his back and needs rehabilitation. And during his rehabilitation, he is quartered with a couple of other British airmen who've escaped. Although it turns out that one of them is actually a Luftwaffe plant uh, and is pumping him for information. During one of the visits to the, the specialist that he attends... He's able to show that he can walk on, on crutches and the the specialist says, oh, well, you, you can obviously walk for a bit, distracts his guards and Sergeant Walker is able to escape. He's still on crutches, has forgotten the phone number of Lifeline and spends his time wandering around the, the city, ending up at a building site. In the meantime, people from Lifeline are trying to find him and... The very final scene is where all the Lifeline personnel, plus Curtis, are waiting at the Café Candide. And Albert comes in and says that Walker is no longer a problem. He's not going to be a problem getting down the uh, the escape line because he's been shot. And the bullet that shot, shot him was German. And we know from earlier on in the episode that the way the people in Lifeline get their supplies, so weaponry, ammunition, is by taking it off Germans rather than Mm. accepting it from England. And the Mm. inference is that Albert is the one that shot him because uh, in a debilitated state, he wasn't going to be able to make it down the Lifeline.
0: And he knew the names of 17 other people that were involved. So,
1: Yeah. A little bit grim.
0: It was bloody grim, but on...
1: Incredibly well done. Oh, I'm captivated by this.
0: I mean, they've clearly spent a lot of money on it. You said it's co-production.
1: Yes, uh, between and... BBC and the um, Belgian television. And much of it is filmed in Brussels. Mm.
0: It's got a very rich feel to it, but there's not an ounce of fat on it. There's no padding. There's no, no wasted scenes, nothing that's... In there that doesn't really need to be. The sense of uh, tension, I would say, pervades, well, the two that we've seen.
1: Yeah, and and that is consistent throughout. Uh, It doesn't have a bad episode.
0: I'm terribly impressed. Yeah, it is a
1: fantastic piece of television. It comes across as very realistic. Mm. Um, There is a large ensemble cast, not one of which is badly portrayed or a wasted character they all have their their roles and their importance
0: uh in terms of who alumni i don't think we've done that yet clifford rose was in warrior's gates valentine dial of course was the black guardian um, captain
1: crow on his head
0: exactly um
1: there have been a couple of others james Bree.
0: oh james Bree is it
1: who is it which one's he he was Mordred Undead, wasn't he? You
0: no, know, James Bree was Trial of a Time Lord. He was the Keeper of the Matrix. But, um, Which
1: is the one who was Mordred Undead?
0: Uh, Valentine Dial, of course, but I think Dr. Runciman was in it. Yeah, mm,
1: I think so. Of the main cast, I think the only one who's a WHO alumnus, apart from Valentine Dial, is Christopher Neim, who was Skagra. Oh, of course, Sharder. Skagra,
0: yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm very much enjoying this. Um, yes, we've
1: been talking about doing, uh, doing it for ages. Really, really good and consistently good throughout the the series. Because this is so good and because Alan absolutely loves Second World War stuff, we've already watched the first couple of episodes and he loved it. So what we're thinking of doing is watching all the other episodes and commenting on them in a separate podcast. To round us off. Firstly, the Jane Asher programme that I was talking about was Wish Me Luck. Don't know it. Extremely good it's set in France and it does involve the uh, the resistance. I mean the, the nice thing about this is that you think it's going to be second world war resistance and it and they are very clear that it isn't and they're very clear that they're separate to mm. the resistance. Wish me luck was about um british agents going and assisting the the french resistance. Jane Asher was the the london contact. I think Catherine Schell would be about the best known of the actors mm-hmm. playing the, um, the team who actually go into into France. That's gritty and nasty in places and well worth watching.
0: I think <laughs> we might need something a little more light-hearted to finish the episode, though. the Threads again. Oh, the, the comedy knockabout that is Threads. <laughs> I was thinking more, how about the first episode of A Lower Low?
1: Oh, what an excellent idea, because... The bar looks almost exactly the same as the bar in L.O.L.O. The, I There's the back room. The, um, okay, I know Michelle from the Resistance in in L.O.L.O. is part of the Resistance, but she is dressed exactly the same as yeah. Jan Francis' character in this.
0: René's got his tash and his barman's outfit. Yeah, there, there's
1: a um, German military and um, Gestapo... He hasn't turned up in this yet, but there is a um, a German secretary who becomes a, an important character later on.
0: What, like Helga?
1: Except a bloke.
0: <laughs> it's, watch it, unfortunately, I've seen Alo, Alo, I've never seen these. So all I can see is all the Alo, Alo characters, but played dead straight.
1: I saw Alo, before I, I saw this, and I couldn't unsee it for about <laughs> three or four episodes. <laughs> um, Once you watch another couple of episodes, the Allo Allo uh, comparison goes out of the window because this is just so good.
0: Oh, it's fantastic. The only thing that I cannot get, I I don't think I'll be able to shake, is when the invalid wife upstairs bangs on the floor. All I can hear in my head is the flashing bed knobs. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's all I can hear.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) <laughs> that character isn't a consistent character throughout the series.
0: Not consistent? What, she changed into something else?
1: No, she gets written out. Oh,
0: oh, right. oh right.
1: The characters that we've seen in, seen in this so far, a number of them don't outlive the first yeah. series.
0: I don't think I need any more grim. We've had two hours of it. Let's have half an hour of non-Grim.
1: Yes, let me... Let me find Hello Hello for you. While I'm doing that, you could explain what Hello Hello is.
0: I could. Um, Hello Hello was uh, quite a long-running sitcom uh, on the BBC from the mid-80s to, I think, the mid-90s it finished. Uh, It was a Saturday night thing, half an hour, basically a Second World War pastiche of Secret Army, set in a a cafe in France. The owner of the cafe, René Artois, was... He was assisting the resistance, who frequently met in the cafe and in his back room. The local German officers used to come into the cafe all the time. And it was a little bit sort of... The cafe owner, everyone in the cafe would assist the German officers in order to assist the resistance. It was all very cleverly done. And there were several plot strands running through it. One of them, I seem to remember, revolved around... A painting for quite a long time that was hidden inside a sausage.
1: The Fallen Madonna with with the Big Boobies. Boobies. By Van Plomp.
0: There was The Gatto in the Chateau. That ran for a little while. Um, There were two English airmen in it, Carstairs and Fairfax. And they were, I think they were in the whole run. They didn't really seem to be making much of an effort to get back home. An English police officer, the joke of which was that he couldn't speak French. So it came out in this pigeon, pigeon English with all the vowels um, transposed. The old mother-in-law bedridden upstairs with the communications radio underneath and whenever anybody wanted to get in touch. Her bed knobs used to flash and the whole bed used to lift up. So it was very silly, but quite funny. And if Simon can find it in his colossal archive, we will be watching the first one.
1: Okay, so we've actually fallen into a bit of an LOLO rabbit hole and watched a couple of episodes because one really wasn't enough. You can see where the Secret Army differences are.
0: Yes. I mean, her flick is the. um, um, Kessler. Kessler character. And you've got the rather fey, sort of more kindly officer. What's his name? The, the tall thin
1: one in Secret Army tall thin one is Mayo Brandt that's the one and that's really the um, the guy Sine character no no the, the guy signer character um, is really an invention for L there isn't a a direct comparison of him in secret army it's more the um the colonel
0: uh, yes to an extent um I mean
1: physically, I agree that um mm. Guy Seiner looks more like Mayor Brandt, but the the character is is the colonel, and there isn't really an equivalent of his second in command in secret Army to the sam Kelly character
0: oh yeah yeah, that's that's so yeah. uh...
1: the two waitresses. It's never actually entirely clear whether Natalie is a waitress or not, but she obviously helps out. Mm. Um, Whereas in Allo Allo, it's clear there are the two waitresses. The bedridden relative becomes mother-in-law rather than... Wife. ...rather than wife, so that there is um, the Carmen Silvera character, Madame Edith, Mm. who can be created. The whole singing thing, in later episodes... Angela Richards, who plays Monique in Secret Army, sings in the cafe. And there was actually a, uh, an album released of uh, An Evening at the Candide with her singing. And her singing is pretty good.
0: That's taking Thai in media quite seriously. It's not the only example, but...
1: Uh... Well, there, there were songs that were specifically written for Secret Army. Right. And there is a secretary who comes along in later episodes of... Secret Army. Because bear (laughs) in mind, by the time Allo Allo started, Secret Army had finished its run. It had a pilot episode in 82, and then it started its full run in 84 and went through to 92.
0: I mean, it was staple Saturday night viewing this. Yes. I think for the whole run, just because as a family, we're all sat together at precisely the time this was on... I don't think my parents were just watching it. I do think that they actively enjoyed it. I remember I w- enjoyed it at the time. and But it was, by the very end, you were sort of getting the same episode over and over. I think there were the nine series all in all, nine or ten. Yeah.
1: and then there were a couple of reunion specials. At-
0: yeah, I know there was a stage version, and uh, I think, a, I don't know whether it was an actual episode, but they certainly had a reunion. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it, it fell back on the tried and tested for laughs, catchphrase.
1: And actually, I I remember, oh, it would have been mid-90s, so not long after Allo Allo finished, going to a... I, I saw Vicky Michelle playing something on stage. and It was something quite serious. wouldn't have been a Shakespeare, because I wasn't into Shakespeare at that point. It might, might have been Nagatha Christie or something, but she put in an absolutely spellbinding mm. performance. She's not really given anything... Much to exercise her acting chops on this, but when she does, she's really got the goods to do it.
0: Yeah, very reminiscent of Elvira, uh, Vicky Michelle, in this. Just to me, that sort of...
1: A couple of points you were focusing on.
0: There were. Uh, but uh, you can pick pretty much any episode of Alolo throughout its entire run. You know what you're going to get. It's, they all blend into one. There's we, no.
1: We watched the whole run, um, Alan and I, and we couldn't do more than two episodes at a time mm. because it was just getting very samey. But they were incredibly entertaining. Yeah.
0: But like like all television of the time, they weren't meant to be watched back. In fact there's very little television of this I know now they um they quite deliberately put entire series online to binge watch. They are designed for Back to back watching In these days There were weekly episodes
1: Yeah And thing Adaptations um, Were tended to be Reviewable So Things like I Claudius And The the John Le Carre's Mm. Things like that You can watch Back to back I mean I Claudius Is a a Long Swathe of television It is absolutely brilliant But I think it's Ten episodes or something
0: I don't I've never seen it I know I know It's fantastic
1: Right that has to go on the list the one
0: that I'd love us to do, actually, because I haven't seen it now for, oh, best part of 20 years, Brighthead Revisited. I don't know whether that's your sort of thing or not. I bought the crap out of me, yeah. frankly. Yes.
1: Um, you see, I'm not I'm not Downton Abbey or anything. I'm Which is a bit weird, because I love things like the *Terence Rattigan's that we've done.
0: Uh, yeah,
1: but Terrence Rattigan... It's not a series. No. Uh, and uh, They're the always one-off plays. Because we did Separate, separate Tables, tables. did Um, And French Without Tears is great. um, Or we could do some Noel Coward. The Vortex is wonderful.
0: It's not cheery. I'm not intimately familiar with Coward. Apart from, I mean, of uh, Hay Fever. I was actually in Hay Fever. I could take it or leave it. I know you've actually lent me the box set of Noel Coward radio plays, um, which I didn't mean to listen to over summer. It's not happened. As a person, Noel Coward's one of those very interesting people. We are segueing quite a long we way. We are, yes. So to drag it right back, hello, hello, fun and fluff, and pick one at random. You probably enjoy it. Secret Sims Army, Army. Oh.
1: not fluffy, incredibly well done. Do not pick one at random if you fancy watching it. Start from the beginning. Yeah. Because you even picking an episode fifth or sixth in the the first season will spoil the previous ones. Mm.
0: Well, I'm I'm very very impressed with that. That's one of the best things we've ever watched. So, on that note, boys and girls, uh, suitably upbeat, we shall sign off. Simon will be back with much more on this topic, I'm sure. In the meantime, enjoy your watching, boys and girls. We'll be back soon. Bye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmosexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.